So this morning we're going to be doing something just a little different in that we're going to be having the scripture reading first because Tammy uh, was nice enough to want to read today's uh, scripture, but she has to run downstairs and teach the children. So we're going to read Romans chapter 6 first before we get into the, um, the meat of the sermon today. So Tammy, if you want to come up, I have it printed out for you. Two pages right there in front of you. Try to speak into the mic if you could. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we had been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you, whom you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing weakness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness that lead, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were freed from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefits you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you very much, honey. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the book of Romans. I ask, Father, that you take chapter 6 this morning and that you just ingrain it into our hearts. You open up our minds for understanding, our spirits for correction and training, and our wills to follow through with what your word says. Father God, I give this time to you and I ask this in your name. Amen. So a little preface to this chapter. One of the keys to understanding the Apostle Paul's writings, and the book of Romans is his writings, and it's one of the the harder books for people to really grasp and understand exactly what Paul is trying to say here. But one of the keys to understanding his writings is that he is assuming the reader has a little bit of understanding of Old Testament history and law. If you were in Sunday school last week, we learned that the church in Rome had gone through this giant upheaval recently, right before he wrote this letter, actually. Roman emperors Tiberius and Claudius had issued an edict, or like a, an executive order, if you want to use that kind of a, a terminology, that said that all Jews must leave the city. So they threw all the Jews out. Well, the, the Roman church was founded by Jewish people. So when they threw that church out, there was only a few Gentiles or non-Jewish people still residing in the church. And these Gentiles only knew the gospel. They only knew about Jesus. They only knew a very basic understanding because they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have the Torah anymore. They didn't have any other um, um, reference to what it meant to be godly other than the oral traditions and some of the letters that were beginning to be passed around to the churches. So they had no understanding of the Old Testament and how it fit in with Jesus' life, his death, his ministry, and his resurrection. So the book of Romans was written soon after the Jews got to return. Upon the death of Claudius in 54 AD, the Jews were able to return to the city of Rome. So they came in and they found a, a pretty thriving Gentile church and they started to acclimate themselves back into it. If they hadn't been able to return, though, Romans probably would have been a much longer book because Paul would have had to go back and pretty much write Hebrews along with Romans and put them both together so they would have a basis of of what he's trying to teach them there. But since the Jews were back, Paul knew that he has, um, has a basis for them to be able to teach their, the new church the basics of how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. And I say this today because we're in a similar situation. 20, 30, 40 years ago, everybody knew something about the Bible. They knew the basics. They knew the basics of creation, knew the basics of a lot of the Bible stories, of the exodus out of Egypt, the famous C.C. DeMille Uh, movie, The Ten Commandments. Everybody's probably seen that at at one time or another. But today, even in my generation, I'm 50 years old, in my generation there's a serious lack of Bible knowledge today. Nobody has any idea 
really what the Bible has to say other than what they've heard in social media or somebody with a whole bunch of initials behind their name saying on TV. They, they really don't understand exactly what the Bible has to say, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. So when I go through the book of Romans here, I go back and teach a lot of these basic things. And if it's a little repetitive to some, that's, that's why I go back and reteach a lot. And the other reason is if you've got a bulletin today, you saw a little comic on the bottom. It was meant to be kind of funny. And it says kind of a picture of the devil on the left there saying, with COVID-19, I closed your churches. And God comes back and says, on the contrary, you just opened a church in every home. So it's making the point that as we go through history here and we get closer and closer to the end times, this meeting that we're having here is probably sooner or later going to become illegal. That's just the way it's going to, the way we're going right now. They're doing it right now in California. Let's face it, they're, they're closing churches saying they can't worship because of coronavirus. Well, if you give that to them, a few years later, they're just going to close the churches because we're divisive and we're um, racist or we're um, insensitive to um, people of different types of lifestyles. So, so I, when I go back and I repeat a lot of this stuff, it's prepare us for when we may be having our own home church services. And so we're able to um, have that basis and understand the Bible from the beginning to the end. So we're going to break it down this morning. As with many things in the Bible, we're going to go back to the beginning and look what was meant to be to discover and unlock the truth of what Paul is trying to convey here. And the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the created nature of humans. Paul talks a lot about death and resurrection and new life and, and everything in this chapter and the need to die to actually come to life. And why is that? Doesn't it seem kind of paradoxical to you and illogical that if you don't understand the Bible's backstory and God's created order, the idea that you have to die to actually live doesn't make a lot of sense. So let's look at chapter or Genesis chapter 2 really quick and look at the verse that explains the creation of humanity. In Genesis 2 verse 7, it says that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, I want to focus you on the phrase this morning, the breath of life. The Hebrew word for breath of life is nishama, and it means to literally impart something of you within that person. It's kind of like if a person is critically low on blood, we would go and give them somebody else's blood. And in essence, part of you will always be now part of that person in, in a small way. But in a larger way here in the Bible, God is imparting some of what makes God, God into us. Now we do have to be a little careful. I, I emphasize the word some because there's some people that take that a little bit too far and say, well, someday that we get to become God. If we, if we do this system or we follow this religion, someday we get to become like God. Mormonism, for example, believes that. That if you follow the, the rules of the church, someday you will become God. 
But that's not what the Bible is saying. What the Bible is saying is that when God breathed into us, that part of himself he placed within us sets us apart from the rest of creation. For example, I've used this, this illustration in the past. Anybody ever have a dog outside on a, on a chain? and they find a pole or a tree and they wrap themselves around it and then start barking because they can't figure out that if you walk the other way, you can get loose? Well, hu well, human beings have the ability to reason. We have the ability to control our emotions. We have the ability to use logic and prior knowledge prior to making any type of decision. And that's what sets us apart from the rest of creation. And when God breathed that breath of life into Adam, not only did he breathe the breath of life, but he breathed within him knowledge, language, reasoning, higher emotions. Adam was completely created to be pre-programmed to function immediately right out of the box. He was able to immediately step into that, ru that role as, as ruler or regent on earth. And God did the same with Eve upon her creation. Don't can't just focus on Adam. Eve and females have the same exact created nature that, that men do. And when God also clothed Adam and Eve with power, that breath that brought life and, and all this knowledge and all these gifts brought with it the Holy Spirit. So God's presence and his power were also imparted onto them. The Bible then has a very interesting verse, and it's a verse that, that has, has um, inspired different, a whole lot of art, a whole lot of statues and everything, um, and it's kind of taken as a throwaway verse, but it's a very, very important distinction to make. In Genesis 2.25, it said that the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, to, to your average reader, that's kind of a throwaway verse. It's almost like a, a parenthetical or an offhand comment that, that Moses was making when he wrote Genesis or at least had dictated Genesis to somebody to write down for him. It just seems like he, said, he, he just kind of said that and it doesn't really mean anything. However, I don't believe that a single word in Scripture is there by accident. And in this case, it's showing us a vital truth here. You see, historically, when people have read this verse, they've always looked at it as being just referring to their physical nakedness, to referring to their innocence, that they haven't been, their brains haven't been um, totally twisted by sin, and, and the naked body would, would be something that would be shameful today. I mean, unless you've been married for a while, you don't really want to look at somebody else getting out of the shower, right? But then... So that's, that's how they were created, but then tragedy strikes. There's a rebellion in heaven during this time. Between the time that God created Adam and Eve to the fall of man, there was a rebellion in heaven. There's a spiritual being named Lucifer, and he attempts to throw a coup on God. He attempts to overthrow God in heaven, convinces a third of the heavenly beings to follow him. He loses. He loses big time. And he gets cast down to earth. The Bible strongly indicates in Ezekiel 24, you can read that on your own if you want, that Lucifer was actually ordained as a guardian cherub over the Garden of Eden. 
So the fact that there were spiritual beings walking around Eden wouldn't have been that strange to people. I've heard a, a lot of people say, well, you know, why did Eve even talk to this, this evil thing and all that? Well, no. He was anointed as a guardian cherub. He was supposed to be there. So him talking to Eve was no, no real big deal. It wasn't anything that was supposed to be unusual. But since Lucifer wanted to strike at God at his, his most sensitive point, at his, his, the crown achievement of his creation, which was humanity, Lucifer chose to deceive Eve and then Adam with lies about a forbidden fruit. You see, God created them with one rule, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Lucifer tricked them into eating it. And with that, when they did that, they both spiritually died. The Bible then says in Genesis 3, verse 7, it says that then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, physically, what has changed between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.7? Nothing, really. Nothing physically has happened. So why were they so ashamed of their nakedness? They both immediately hid from God to try to, and tried to cover themselves. The Holy Spirit that they were endowed with had left them. They lost their ability to see into the spiritual. They lost that created part of them that was meant to be closely walking with God and connected with God and communion with God. All of that left them. So all they could do is see at that point through their physical eyes. Their spiritual eyes had been closed. Now you consider Genesis 3 in the light of the entire Bible text. Throughout the Old Testament in particular, and even the New Testament, when somebody needs to see something truth, what would the prayer be? Open their eyes, right? Jesus prayed it. He, he called people blind because they could not see the, the truth of the gospel. There's an Old Testament story of Elijah who's surrounded by his enemies. He's in a city. The uh, neighboring king hates him. Surrounds the city. He's going to put the whole city under siege to kill one person. So Elijah's servant looks out from the walls of the city and he sees this gigantic army surrounding him. He goes, oh, we're doomed. We're going to die. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? I mean, he's, he's basically hyperventilating into a paper or papyrus bag at this point, right? I mean, he's, he's having a huge panic attack. What does Elijah pray? God just opened his eyes that he may see. God granted that request, and Elijah's servant's eyes were open, and he got to see the angels of heaven and the heavenly host surrounding the army that was surrounding him, and they outnumbered him 100 to 1. Conversely, how are people who can't or won't see truth described in the Bible? Blind. That's how Jesus described the religious leaders of his day. Blind, that they refuse to see the truth. I point out all of this from the created order to point this out. The point that Paul is trying to get in the early chapters of Romans, and particularly in this chapter we're looking at this morning, is since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, we've all started from a place of spiritual death. 
We are in spiritual chains and we're enslaved to our fleshly sinful nature because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. That's where humanity starts. And not only do we start in a bad place, but we're plugged into a power source we were never intended to operate from. It's like taking your hair dryer to Europe and trying to plug it into a European outlet. Your, your hair dryer will set on fire because the voltage coming out of that outlet is twice as much as what's intended for that hair dryer. The same thing here. We are plugged into the world system, but our power source is incompatible with that, and it leads to a spiritual death. That's why we have to be born again. And he says that in Romans 6, verse 3. He said, Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, we too may have a new life. And Paul uses the example of baptism to show the spiritual truth behind being born again. When we chose to obey Jesus and be baptized, we're saying to the world that we're dying to that old way of life. We're leaving it behind. And then we rise in the water and we rise with Jesus, symbolizing our resurrection from a dead lifestyle into, a, into Jesus, who's our source of, of strength, of vitality and power and presence. Jesus then breaks those chains of sin and death and declares freedom for those who were previously held captive to lifestyles of sin and death. And that's the incredible truth found here in the book of Romans. Listen to these next verses with a greater appreciation of what Jesus has done for you and see why we place our hope in him. In Romans 6, verse 5, it says, If we have been united with him in his death, we will now certainly be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. A dead person cannot sin. Right? They can't do anything to break God's law because they can't think, they can't move. There's nothing there but a shell that used to house the spirit of the person. A dead person can't sin. And what Paul is telling us here is that sin is no longer the default action of a person who has actually been born again. If you are a disciple and follower of Jesus, sin can only happen now through a willful action on our part. We have to will to sin. It's not just the default. Sometimes, but not mo sometimes if not mostly, people who are believers in Jesus sin simply because of spiritual immaturity. We haven't surrendered something of ourselves to him all the way yet. I'm not saying that a believer will never sin. As long as you're on this earth, in this body, we will, we will miss the mark on occasion. An example. 
Anybody here have a bad temper? Conrad, you have a bad temper? <laughs> I saw you nodding. I'm like, oh, you must have gotten past that. I had a boss once. Um, bad temper was his default. We, uh, we had an a ambulance where our radio wasn't working, and so it was a Saturday. He had had a really long week. He did most of the, his own work on the ambulances, and, and I brought the ambulance to him, and he came in on a Saturday, and he was always crabby about doing that. And, and he, he told us to park it by the garage. It was kind of like is an industrial park, and the garage was here. There was a building, and then the next building over was our main office dispatch. And so we parked it by the garage. We walked over to dispatch. We're talking with the dispatcher, and phone rings, and basically he says, come get the ambulance. It's fine. So we walk over there, and I don't even get past the, that building, and I could hear him screaming and cussing. And he's carrying on. He's like, there's nothing wrong with this ambulance. You're bringing me in on my day off. My only day off. I've been working 80 hours this week. Just screaming and, and a lot of profanity and just yelling and screaming. And he comes up to me. And I'm training a new person, by the way. And she's never seen him in one of his rants. And, and she's like, like she's about ready to cry because he's just carrying on so much. And he like gets in my face and spits flying. He's screaming in the top of his lungs. His face is all red. And then he takes the wrench that he had in his hand and he throws it on a frozen rope and like it would be about like halfway across the street and it crashes off and takes a chunk out of the back wall and he's screaming and all of a sudden the ambulance goes super revs up and goes bang and shuts down and won't start again and I just looked at him I said I don't know boss looks broke to me <laughs> but that was his that was his default reaction to any inconvenience he would fly off the handle scream and yell and shout um, I, was this, I was the ALS manager at the time, and anything that would go wrong, he would walk into that station and scream and yell and holler and throw things and kick things and everything else, and then he would calm down, and I would say, okay, boss, what do you really want to talk about now? Because whatever that was that set him off isn't what he actually came over and talked to me about. And we'd go to Starbucks, and he'd buy me a coffee, and then we'd work it out. But that was his default reaction. That was just his natural disposition to any kind of stressor. Now, when we come to Christ, Jesus will, if you let him, begin to change those things within you, and he'll be able to give you a greater sense of self-control. And, and perhaps have empathy to see the other person's point of view. And realize they're struggling with many of the same issues that you struggle with. Maybe they also have a bad temper. Maybe they also are emotional about things. Or maybe you have an addiction to something. Maybe through bad choices you've rewired your brain to think that the only way you can have happiness is through indulging of whatever sinful practice we're talking about. It might not even be the obvious things like pornography or sexual sin. It might be the subtle sins like gossip or little white lies that make you look better than other people. But all these sins, no matter how big they are, if you're talking murder of children down to a white lie, they all have the same punishment, and that is spiritual death. All sin is equal in the eyes of God, the Bible says. They all have the same punishment, and that is apart from Jesus Christ that will be eternal separation from God and anything good in a place called hell. And that's why Paul tells us and he exhorts us 
In verse 11, he said, In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive in God through Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. It's a choice we have. Sometimes we have the wrong idea of grace, I think. Sometimes we think, instead of thinking of grace as what it is, which is unmerited and undeserved favor of God. We didn't do anything to deserve it. He was just kind to us and forgives us of our sin and sent Jesus to pay for it. That's what grace is. But sometimes we just think of grace as a a get-out-of-hell-free card. Remember in Monopoly, you have the get-out-of-jail-free card? You land on jail and you can pull that out and keep going? Well, that's how people think of grace. But really what grace is is an invitation to God's presence, God's power, God's strength, and God's favor. Grace says you don't need to pick up the chains of sin again to feel fulfilled in life. You ever see the people who say, I need to live more before I give my heart to Jesus. Or I need to, to, to go out and have fun before I get into that church thing. That's not, that's not what God wants for you. He wants to give you grace, but you have to make that decision to come to him. Grace is the cord that binds us together with Christ. That cord that says he is now our source of everything godly. Continuing in Romans, it says, Do you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, with, which leads to righteousness. And this is a critically important fact that we need to understand and grasp and live out. Is that when we willfully choose to sin, we have to grab the grace that God gives us and cast it down and almost step on it to, be, to um, participate in that sin. And that's why the Bible warns us about trying to play both sides of the fence. That's why the Bible talks about um, something that's called a hypocrite. Within, in the Greek language, a hypocrite is an actor. That's, that's the word they would use for actor. The Academy Award would be celebrating hypocrites in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture. So it's a, it's a person who plays a part. And when a person tries to play that part on Sunday morning and live like hell the rest of the week, that is taking that grace that he is freely giving you. Think about everything Jesus had to go to on the cross. And when we choose to continue to sin, 
That is like taking G that is like pounding more nails into Jesus' hands. That's like whipping him all over again. It's saying that what you went through wasn't good enough and can't fulfill me the way that this thing can. You know, I started to walk away from the church. I was confirmed actually as a Lutheran. And I started to walk away from the church as a teenager, and I was hanging out with a lot of people that weren't good for me. I went to go see my grandparents. My grandparents were very good Lutherans. And, and very serious about their faith, and, and very much Christian. And I went up to see my grandparents, and back in the 80s, I know it wouldn't be a big deal today, but I actually had an earring in my ear. And that was a major kind of scandal in our family <laughs> at the time. And, and, uh, and they, they saw it. They didn't really say anything about it, but when I got home, back to Kenosha, they, uh, call, my grandfather called me. And he said, you know, I'm a little concerned about the friends because I drove up there with my friends. And he goes, I'm a little concerned about these people that you're hanging around with, that they're not the best for you, Johnny. And uh, I want you to consider, you know, maybe making some new friends because I can kind of see where these friends are going to take you and it's not a good place. And I'm like, oh, Grandpa, you're just old-fashioned and what do you know and, you know, this kind of thing. And he said, Johnny, let me tell you something. He goes, I learned when I was a farmer, is you can't hug a pig who's rolling in the mud and expect not to stink. Grandfather always had a way with words like that. Sin will always leave a stain on us. Sin will always leave its stench and its consequences behind. And too many Christians want to roll with the pigs and forget that in every action there is a consequence in life. And when it comes to sin, if we allow that to rule in our lives, spiritual death will be the result. Christians who do this wonder why their lives, their friendships, their marriages, and even their finances or their children are going to hell. It's because they're being hypocrites. It's because they're trying to live for the devil Monday through Saturday and trying to live for God for a couple hours on Sunday. Your sin will find you out, the Bible says. That's why Paul emphatically, emphatically, if, if any part of the Bible could blink off the page at us, it would be this great verse, it should be a memory verse that we should all memorize. And that's Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't expect to be able to play with sin and not have its consequence. Willfully sinning is like drinking a little poison each day and maybe feeling a little sicker with each sip, but saying, well, it's not that bad. But that's why Paul gives us the answer in this chapter. We need to die to that sin so Jesus can raise us into a new life. So I would encourage you this morning, let Jesus be your chain breaker. All of us have a precollection or predisposition toward a particular sin. The Bible very much indicates that. And we fight with it our entire lives. Paul said he had a, a thorn in his flesh that, that Satan would use to buffer him, to take him off the path that God had for him. But God told Paul, 
when God, Paul kept asking, God, take this away. God, take this away. God, take this away. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power will be perfected in your weakness. But we have to be willing to lay that down before God. Let's just all bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. Father God, we all have things in our lives that where we have fallen short of the glory of God, where we have, have willfully done things that your word plainly says are evil, your word plainly says are sin. Father, we don't want to live like that anymore. We don't want to live with, with the stain of sin in our lives. So, Father, I just ask, Lord, that you search us and you know us this morning. That we would willingly make the decision that this sin is not worth it. That we need to cast this aside. Jesus, I just ask that you begin to break chains here. That you begin to proclaim freedom to the captive. That you would take the snares that the devil keeps setting in our path and demolish them through the blood.